Let's read the text this morning, and then we'll do a little bit of review and get into it. So, I do believe God's going to speak to us, and that He's going to encourage us and convict us. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know His will, and reprove the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're tr- you are a transgressor of the law... Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the law, letter of the law, and circumcision are transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So last time, if you remember being what we talked about, the impartiality of God. God does not show favoritism. God will not be bribed. He will not allow us to, through works of any means, to try to think that we're something. Just because God chose Abraham and his descendants, the Jews shouldn't boast in that. They shouldn't think, well, God's going to overlook my sin and judge the the wicked Gentiles. So Paul is making a point. Remember, in chapter 1, he's dealt with the Gentiles, their specific sin, their rejection of natural revelation. And now in chapter 2, he's dealing with the Jews' rejection of God and His law. That they they think that because they have the law, they're something. And that's what he really gets to here in verse 17. When he gets to verse 17, he's saying... If you, and I think it's really important that, that Paul here is using you instead of you all. He's not using a plural sense. He's saying, he's trying to get to the point of every single person that he's talking to, to look at themselves. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. So he's saying, if, if you say, well, I'm a Jew I have the law and, and God is my God. Okay, great. And, verse 18, and know His will and approve the things that are essential. 
being instructed out of the law and are being confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So we see here the Apostle Paul is being very specific now. In chapter 2, 1 through 16, he doesn't necessarily name the Jews, but it's highly implied. Because the riches of God's kindness, that's a complete pouring out of God's kindness upon someone. And the Jews were the only ones who truly experienced that. Except for the few that came in, like Rahab, um, Ruth. Um, There were a few non-Jews who were brought in and are actually in the lineage of Christ, the physical lineage of Christ. But for the majority, the riches of God's kindness were only poured out on the Jews. They experienced God in ways that no one else had ever experienced. And so he's saying, yes, you, you think that because you're a Jew, that because you have the law, that you can boast in God. Oh, he's my God. And so, but it's important that we notice there's a transition in verse 21. And I, I, I'm not going to get to it just yet, but it, this is a, a statement, if question. And then in verse, if you get to verse 21, he says, you then... So if you think of an argument, it's an if-then argument. He's saying, if you say this, then this should be true, right? So I want us to think about that as we're, we're reading through this. So they are relying on the law. And, and we know this because they think that there's something. We see that all through the first section of chapter 2. But in reality, they're relying on themselves. They say they're relying on God. They're relying on His law. But in reality, they're relying on themselves. Because they're puffing up themselves. In verse 8, we see some of these things. And know His will and approve the things that are essential. Being instructed out of the law. So... They claim to know God's will because they have the law and they think that they can discern good and evil. That's a lot. Other translations say something to that, that effect. And so, and the law is their textbook. You know, we, we have studied the law, kind of like a lawyer. You know, they, they go to law school, they know everything that they're supposed to know. Or they fail the bar, right? They can't become a lawyer unless they know the law. So, but interestingly, lawyers break the law. Have you ever thought about that? How many lawyers or even lawmakers in, our, in the United States? I, was, I just put in a, a Google search, lawmakers who broke the law. And there was like a... a, a, a a news article that had just multiple lawyers and lawmakers who had broken the law that they had pushed for to the point where it's like, what hypocrites, <laughs> right? And this is the same thing for us. Like the, the Jews, they knew the law, they knew it, but in reality, they didn't know it. Because it wasn't to the heart of the matter. 
And I think Paul is specifically talking to Jews, but I think there's a message for us today. Because in the church, oftentimes we think that since we have God's word and we got baptized someday and um, we, we go to church, that we're going to be okay. But it's not. It has to be a heart change. And that's what Paul is really getting to here in this section of chapter 2. And they, we really see that at the end of this chapter. So they, they're relying on the law and because they, they say we've been instructed by it. I mean, they went to the synagogue constantly and were constantly taught God's law. So for anybody, they should have known, just as us, go to church and we hear God's word preached. But are we guilty like them? Do we think in verse 19 that we are guiding the blind? Do we think we're a light in darkness? Are we? Really? Are we? Are they? Because in reality, he's, he's indicting them. He's saying, you're guilty of, you're saying these things and you should be doing these things. You should be a guide to the blind. You should be a light in the darkness. And you see, if you turn the page to 20, you should be a corrector of the foolish. A teacher of the immature. You should, in the law, find all the knowledge and truth embodied. But there's a problem. They have all this, but they can't actually say that they're correcting the foolish. They can't actually say that they're teachers of the immature. They can't say that they're guiding the blind. They can't say any of those things. So this is their... They, the Jews really stood on two things. And we see both of these here. And the first one is the law. And, there, and I think Paul is getting to the point, does the law save? That's the first point that I think he's addressing in this section. Does the law really save? Because when he gets to verse chapter 21, or verse 21 here, he says, you then, so you the ones that are, that I just said if about, the ones who are saying I'm a Jew, who say that you know the will of God, that you are guiding the blind, that you're light in the darkness, that you're the corrector of the foolish, the teacher of the immature, you, you all, you, you the ones who teach another to do, do you not teach yourselves? Right? I mean, how many of you all, if you had a teacher in school, let's, let's say you had an algebra teacher. Imagine an algebra teacher that was trying to t teach you um, trigonometry. Those of you that remember trigonometry, <laughs> I use it all the time at work because it's very helpful. I don't know if you've heard of Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You remember that formula? Maybe not. But it's a, it's a way to find an area of a triangle. I use it when I'm measuring for vinyl siding. But um, anyways... You just need two sides, and it'll tell you the length of the other one, okay? 
Well, imagine if an algebra teacher taught you that and they gave you a specific application of how to use it. But then, later on in the week, that teacher is in the same situation that they used as an example for using that formula. And they're like, I have no idea how to figure out this information. Right? That's what's going on. We, oftentimes we think that because we're teachers, and this is, this is, I'm applying this to us, oftentimes we think that we've arrived and we, we are now mature, so we don't need to be taught anymore. And that is so false. That's a lie from the devil. We, we should be constantly learning from the Word of God. We should be constantly growing. And we can learn from people younger than us, We can learn from people older than us. I learn a lot from my kids. Some things I don't want to know about myself, right? And and then other things I do. But we're learning every day. We should be. We should be growing in the Lord. We should not be falling back. And that's the thing. Many of the Jews, they, they live. This was a national identity. We're teachers We teach truth. But the problem was, when the truth came, when Christ came, what happened? They didn't recognize Him. They never lived for truth. They didn't live for learning the truth about God. They were, they they loved the, the, the place of a teacher, but they didn't really want to learn themselves. You know, Today, many teachers, they have to be going to school. Like, they have to constantly go to school because they have to understand the new ideas and and all these things. But in the church, oftentimes we think, well, once I reach a plateau that's considered mature among my peers, then I'm okay. But that's not right. We should be constantly seeking to know God. And and one way is, is God's Word. It is where we are instructed. It is, in a sense, it, we have to be careful about this, it is, in, in a sense, a textbook for the Christian life. I mean, we can go the other way and, and treat it like a textbook that we like put away when we get done with the class and we never look at it again. Probably that algebra textbook that all of you all put away. The only one that I remember is Pythagorean theorem. I I can't remember how to find the sine, cosine of anything. I've got a calculator for that. But all these, oftentimes we set God's law, God's word. So again, I'm I'm kind of twisting this for us. But um, oftentimes we set God's word, his revelation of himself on the shelf like a textbook that we've read, we think, well, I've read through the Bible once. I mean, that should be enough. The problem is God's Word is living. It's active. It's constantly, it's not that it's changing, but our lives and what God is doing in our lives changes the way we read it. We miss something. I've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers probably the last six months. And it's, I've been amazed at how much is hidden in those two books. Stuff that I never saw before, but they're hidden in that book, those books. And they teach me about God's character. 
But if I had just said, you know what, I've read Numbers and Leviticus before, and it's kind of like Chronicles. I just, and it's just lots of names and numbers, and I mean, it's really not that valuable. If I had decided not to go deeper, then I, I would never have seen these things that were specific things that I needed to hear. God encouraging me to stick with it, to, to see the truths. It's amazing how the Old Testament is constantly pointing to Christ. And we're going to see that specifically today in the second section of this, this uh, passage. So, are we teaching ourselves we should be. I, I'll tell you what, whenever I am preparing to preach or preparing for a Bible study, when I was doing that in prison, I would find myself learning way more than I could ever share with someone else. And, and teaching me things about God that I'd never thought about before. Because you have to think, it, when we're teaching this is a, a thing that we should see. When we're teaching something, we want to understand it. We want to be able to make it understandable to the people that we're encountering every day. Not everyone speaks Bible language or Christian Christianese, right? And that doesn't make it wrong. I mean, we're going to have specific language. It's just like mechanics have mechanies. I'm, I'm making up a word, but, you know, and, and cabinet shops have cabinetese. <laughs> you know, if you if you told a cabinet shop guy that you were going to make a jig, he wouldn't think you were going to go dancing. Just saying, <laughs> they're they're different. Okay, so we use language specific to different areas, but that to say, we need to be able to teach others, and that requires us being humble and realizing, you know what. I may have read this a few times. I may have walked with God for a few years, but I have got to be taught by God. I've got to have that relationship with God. And that's what has happened with them. They, they have relied on generations of, of men and women who are the descendants of Abraham. Well, that's, that's where our pride comes from. And we really see that in, in Romans chapter 4 when we get there. But... We need to be mature and realize, God, I, I need more of you. I need, I need to know you better. I want that intimacy with you because that's, that's what God is calling us to. Or, second half of verse 21, you who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? This is very similar language to what we saw in Romans 2, 1 through 5. He's saying... You, you're telling others not to steal, but you're stealing. You, you say, well, I don't take candy packets from Kroger when I go there. I don't. But are there ways in our lives that we're stealing? I think Paul is addressing these overt sins to show that no one can be righteous by the law. Because this is the thing. Paul, everywhere else in the book of Romans, he's constantly saying, and we see that very specifically in verse 10 of chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. 
There are none who understands, and there are none who seeks for God. So I think Paul is saying, look, if I name these things, these issues, adult stealing, and then in verse 22 he says, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Are you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So are are these people who are saying they're teaching another, are they actually teaching something else by what they're doing? It's kind of a flip on what they're, they should be not stealing. They should be honest in all that they do. But in reality, they're stealing. They're, they're preaching one thing and doing another. Or they're telling others, oh, you shouldn't commit adultery, but then they're in that sin themselves. Whether, whether, Apostle, whether Paul is directly thinking about what Jesus said, that he who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart, it's very possible that he's thinking that. It's, it's alluded to in the Old Testament, so it could be that that's what he's dealing with. And this idea of, Robbing temples is very strange. Why, why does he have, like, are Jews going to temples and stealing things out of them? Uh, that doesn't make sense. Well, oftentimes in those times, people would sell the metal from idols in the market. And it was clearly shown that those were from idols. And in Deuteronomy, there is an express um, law that says not to have anything to do with idols from those nations. That, so I, I believe from the commentaries that I've read that that's what he's talking about. He's, a, he's talking about the people who are ignoring God's law in little ways, thinking, well, God won't care. God won't care about this little bitty piece of silver I got off of a this idol or this little piece of gold or emerald or whatever. But God does. God, God deals with every part. I, there was an analogy that I heard like this week that I thought was really helpful. When we break God's law, we're breaking a chain. The chain we're trying to climb to heaven on. That's what the law is. It's like a chain that people are trying to climb to heaven. And when you cut one, break one chain... You and the rest of the chain fall. It's one link. And that's, that's how God's law is. When we break one part, we break it all. And that's where we get to verse 23. You who boast in the law. Oh, we have the law, right? We're better because we have it. And he says, through your breaking the law, don't you dishonor God? Right? So we're seeing, he's saying, you're boasting and oh, how great it is that we, the Jews, have God's express revelation in his law. We have what his word says. Well, you're breaking the law. Don't you dishonor God in doing that? Don't you realize that you're Breaking his law? But really, 
they should be doing what Isaiah 42.6 says. And you can turn there if you would like. I think Paul is referring to this when he, he looks, when he talks to them in verse 19. He says, <clears throat> Isaiah says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The Jews should be, again, I've said this, they should be blinding, not blinding, guiding the blind. They should be giving light to the darkness, setting free the prisoners who are in darkness. They should be correcting the fools. They should be teaching the immature. But the problem is they're boasting in the law and they can't even keep it themselves. They're dishonoring God with their actions. And we see that so clearly in verse 24. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. Paul is pointing the finger. He's saying, it is because of you that God's name is blasphemed. And how, ta- how many times, brothers and sisters, are we the cause of God's name being blasphemed? This is not an easy message. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Because oftentimes, we say one thing as believers. We say, well, we have God's word. Oh, we believe truth. Are we living it? Really? Because I can think of multiple occasions in the last month, at least one occasion, where I had to call someone and apologize who was not a, not a member of this church, and I'm not sure if she's a believer or not, this person. And I had to apologize because I, my heart smote me because I was dishonoring God in the way that I talked to that person. Right? So, she could have thought, well, man, Caleb, he seemed like a nice guy, but when the pressure was put on, he really wasn't who he said he was. And she could have said, well, well, if he was the best Christian I knew, then, and he, he acted that way, then maybe, maybe all... Maybe this God thing is a bad, bad deal. We need to check our motives. Why, why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Are we seeking to glorify God in what we say and what we do? Or are we just seeking to please ourselves? You know, I'll, I'll live right and, you know, it's acceptable to be a Christian. Right? It's acceptable to be nice. It's acceptable to present yourself well in our society. So it's not that hard to be a Christian. But when the, the pressure hits us, what are we going to do? Is the Spirit going to come out? You know, you know how olives, when they're pressed, that's how they get oil, right? They press it, squeeze that oil out. Well, what's the oil that's coming out of us? 
when, when the hard times come, is it the Spirit of God? Or is it what we see in the end of verse 29? Are we looking for the praise of men so the flesh comes out? Is it, is it hope or anger that comes out? I am so thankful for God's word, but if we do not apply it to our lives, if we are not living by the word of God, then it's useless. It would be better to put it up on the bookshelf and leave it there. Stop calling ourselves Christians if we're not going to live by God's word. And this is not possible without verse 25 through 29. If we don't understand 25 through 29, we don't realize that we cannot live by God's word without a change, a fundamental change of heart. So in verse 25, we have our second point. Remember, I, I said the law doesn't save. That's, I feel like that's the point. Uh, verse 1 or verse 17 through 24. And then verse 25, he's getting to their last resort, which is circumcision doesn't save. And I want us to see first in Genesis chapter 17. I want us to see how it was given. Because Paul is constantly referring to Old Testament ideas. That's why we can't, as some pastors want to say, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Because if without the Old Testament, we do not understand the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans alone, quotes all over the Old Testament. He didn't seem to have a problem with it. Anyways, side note. Genesis 17, verse 11. Well, we'll start in verse 10. It says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign, or the sign, of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house, or who is brought, bought with money from a foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house, or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus... Shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant? But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God is giving this as a sign of his covenant. And if you look in the New Testament, what is the sign of his covenant with us? You remember? The seal of His covenant, the Spirit. It also says it's the first fruits. It's a promise. Can you imagine when we're filled with the Spirit that 
you know, we constantly have to pray, Lord, fill me. Not that he, 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 he hasn't filled us, but that he constantly is filling us. That we need his spirit to be renewed afresh every day. But one day, when we get to heaven, we will be completely filled with his spirit. Can you imagine? I, I can't. I, it's hard to think about that. But anyways, so we see this Old Testament figure, but it's interesting here, it's a sign of his covenant. It's not a guarantee for the person that has the sign that they're born again. Does it say that anywhere here? No, it's a sign to the, all his descendants that God made a covenant with Abraham. And guess what? That covenant is still true. Because God promised Abraham not based on this covenant. Sign, if, you may, if that makes sense. So if you turn back to Genesis chapter 12, I want us to see that God gave the sign after he had already promised Abraham. Way after. So, verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so shall you be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right here, in the end of chapter 3, verse 3, we see the promise to us. Right? This promise was made five chapters and a lot more years from the promise covenant sign. It's the same issue that we see with the Israelites when they're brought out of Egypt. God brings them out of the Egypt before He gives them the law. They had to trust God. And the same here, verse 4. What did Abraham do? So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. If that is not faith, I don't know what is. And when we get to Romans chapter 4, we're going to see that. We're going to see that it was accounted to Abraham for his faith. He went out at the word of God. That's what faith, faith is taking action on what we hear, right? What we know to be true. So, I would say, before the sign of circumcision was given, Abraham had already shown faith. He was already walking in faith. The sign just was a way to separate, to set apart the people of Israel from those around them. So it did have value. But... What do we see here in verse 25? What is Paul saying? Is he saying it's useless? No. What he says, For indeed circumcision is of value if, key word, if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So is he saying 
that there is actually a person who walked the earth, who was circumcised, and was able to keep the law. No. Because that would completely destroy everything he says in the book of Romans. And really, everything else that Paul says. What he's saying, he's putting a hypothetical option out there. This is a possibility if it were possible. It's a very hypothetical. So he's saying, if you could actually keep the law, then it would be good for you. It would be helpful for you. But you can't. But you can't. You're a transgressor of the law. You, you are boasting in your circumcision because you think that it's of great value that it sets you apart. Yes, it does in a sense. But in reality, God is looking at the heart of the problem. Abraham already had a heart that had been transformed by God. The circumcision was just a sign of what God had already done in Abraham. Right? And so the problem is they're starting with the sign and no heart change. And oftentimes that's what we do. We want people to conform to the exterior change. Oh, you wear a suit and tie to church? Okay, you're good. You know, or, or you're wearing a, a skirt that's long enough now, you've been saved for a week. A lot of times we look at the exterior forgetting that if God does a work in the heart, we're not going to have to tell Him that skirt's so high that it could might as well not be there. Or your, your dress is very uh, sensual or whatever it may be. When, when God changes a heart, everything else comes into line. It's, it's, it may not come into your line, because modesty is God's design. Not We don't get to regulate modesty. I'm not saying my wife is very modest, but um, I don't tell her what she can and cannot wear because she has that relationship with the Lord. She hears from the Lord and she desires above all things to glorify God with her body as well as her clothing. And so, in the same way, if we deal with the exterior first, but we don't deal with the heart, which is the problem, then eventually we'll just have a sign of Christianese, of being a Christian, but in reality we're not. We say I'm bound to God, but what is, what is it that's showing it in our lives? So, Verse 26, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circum or his uncircumcision, sorry, be regarded as circumcision? This verse is interesting because some people say, well, there was somebody that probably did this. I'm like, it's, it's, it's the same issue. Paul is putting it out there like, if there were if it was possible for a man to keep the law. It wouldn't matter if he's circumcised or if he isn't. The circumcision is not what makes it possible for you to keep the law. It's just a sign of being God's chosen people. And I would say there are some who use circumcision as a 
parallel with baptism. Because they, they want to say, well, you need to be baptized to be saved. And they, they say that baptism took the place of circumcision. And then I would go here and say, Paul is saying it's useless to have the external if the internal hasn't changed. So, infant baptism has no use. There are some godly men that I know believe in infant baptism, but I don't, I can't argue that from Scripture because he is dealing with the issue of the heart. If the heart is not changed, why would you have a sign of the exterior? It's just with Abraham. Abraham is a prime example, the first of the line, and he had faith well before any sign of covenant. I mean, God didn't even make the covenant where he had him cut the animals in half and God himself walked through. He didn't even do that covenant till after he had already promised and after Abraham had taken steps of faith to go to Canaan. I think that's so important for us to see. In verse 27 he says, And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Again, this whole idea of a person being able to be perfect, to live by the law, whether circumcised or not, that's not the issue. What he's saying is, you have all this and you break the law, and you're getting on these other people who are breaking the law as though you're something because you have circumcision, because you have the law. Again, our, all of us have God's wall written on our hearts, but we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all hate God naturally. We don't like to submit to authority. We may think we do now, but have you ever had... I will give an example from my life. I one time was pulled over by a sheriff who was about my age. You know, he had his Oakleys on. When he got out of the car, I, like, I knew I was going to get a ticket. You know, young, thinks he's the big dog... And at that moment, this was when I was about 23, I think. I was like, if I was a girl, he wouldn't give me a ticket. <laughs> but, like, I just knew, and like, even as a, I was a Christian, even in that moment, I'm thinking, I really don't like this guy. He's, but he was a, a figure of authority. He had a right to give me a ticket. I was speeding. He may have followed me for two miles after he, get, he clocked me, but I deserved a ticket. But because of who he was, I resented his authority because I had just broken the law. Right? So, it's the same thing. Oftentimes in the world, the world indicts us for sin in our lives. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody you knew was not a Christian, one, not a Christian, and you're thinking, man, how can they tell me that when I know how they live? Have you ever had that happen? If you haven't, 
um, you're a lot better off than I am. <laughs> but I've had that happen where people in the world have to confront me with my sin. They may not call it sin, but I know it's sin. And they say, well, you say you're a Christian and you're doing this. It's an indictment. That's what he's talking about. Like these people are bringing, they're judging you. And you say, well, I have, again, we're going to today. I have God's word. I, I've been baptized. I've been born again. But they're indicting you. And so as believers, we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking, well, we have these things. I had an experience, and yes, it was a true experience. I'm not denying that. But oftentimes we fall into the trap of, oh, I've got all these prerequisites, so I'm okay. I can kind of back off a little bit. I don't have to be so vigilant in my walk. And I'm telling you, that is a sign of letting it slip. It's a slow. There, I mean, that song that Casting Crown sings, a slow fade, it's so real. I've seen it so many times in my short life. People, at first it's like, that's a small, it kind of seems significant to people outside. It's a small change, but it, it's slowly but surely, eventually, before long, they're still claiming Christ, but... Their life is not in line with God's Word in any way, shape, or form. And many people who came out of the world, I mean, they had a dramatic experience. And today, they're just a cleaned up version of themselves before Christ. They, they dress nicely. They, they act nice, but their lives are the same. They didn't get all the consequences of sin that, that they would have had if they'd lived all those years without Christ, but or, or claiming Christ. So we have to be careful, brothers. We have to realize that though we may feel like we have the marks of the covenant of God on us, that we don't slack off that we don't rely on those things why because in verse 28 he really gets to the heart literally of the issue for he is not a jew who is one outwardly what most jews would not like this <laughs> nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh Still question, what? That doesn't make sense. I'm confused. Well, he explains it in verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. That is the heart of of the gospel. That is the heart for us, for them, for all men. God wants men and women who are sold out from the heart. The covenant sign was just a sign. It should have been a sign for the Jews of what had happened inside. Just as our clothes should be a, 
a representation of what God has done to us in the heart. And there is so many allusions in the Old Testament. I want us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 because so many people, again, I, I'm kind of harping on this point, so many people think the Old Testament is useless. I want to tell you the gospel is in the Old Testament everywhere. And especially right here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 17 through 17. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. What does he mean? Fear. What is fear? It's believing God will do what he says in his word. Whether that's good or bad. Whether you're believing him to do something for you as he's promised or you're afraid that He will do something that He's promised. You live in sin, you will face justice. That's what fear is. To walk in all His ways. To love Him. To serve the Lord your God with what? All your Words, all your actions, all your clothes. No, he says, all your heart and with all your soul. In Hebrew, that idea is everything that is within you. There is nothing within you that is not seeking to serve him. Now, if that is not what we see as necessary in the gospel. That's what Jesus was talking about when he would get down to the heart of all the problems. Where you look, your feelings for your brother. Those are all heart issues. The Jews were so focused on the outward appearance of things that they forgot the heart. They never dealt with the heart. Because I think it's interesting, he puts this first and then verse 13 says, And to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Isn't that interesting? He commands him to love the Lord and serve him with all their hearts and souls before he tells them to keep the commandments. I don't think that's an accident. Because the commands, the desire to follow God come from a heart that is surrendered to God. A heart that has been transformed. And it's for their good. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Sounds like a pretty tr transcendent God, right? A God who can't be touched. He's so big. There's no way you could get a chance to, to see Him, to experience Him, right? Uh, no. Verse 15. Yet the Lord set His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples 
as you are this day. The Lord set his heart. I think this verse, this chapter 10 here, it, it just shows me so many people are on one extreme or the other. They think of God as so far removed from the world. Or they think of the other extreme, God is everything, everywhere. But God is with us. And yet He still maintains His godly authority, His power. And He loves us. And then verse 16, this is where I think I am... I don't know Paul personally, but I would say Paul was thinking about this verse. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn or stiff-necked is actually the Hebrew word. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The mighty, the great, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. I almost wonder if Paul had his copy of Deuteronomy 10 sitting on one hand, and he's writing the book of Romans in the other. Because we see God's impartiality here at the end of chapter 10. He's saying, God is not partial, and he's set his love on you. Serve him with all your might and Keep His commandments. That's secondary. That, those come from a heart change. And that's the problem that the Jews had. They had all the exterior, exterior external um, signs of a Jew. But their hearts were not His. They weren't concerned about glorifying God. They weren't concerned about serving Him. They were concerned about themselves, how they looked to the world. As long as the world didn't think they were blind and foolish and thought of them as great teachers, that was good. And just in case we don't realize that the gospel is here too, look in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I find it so interesting in the book of the law. That's what the Deuteronomy is, the second telling of the law. That's where we get the word. It says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is what Paul is talking about. If our hearts have not been circumcised, the law, circumcision is of no use. It's empty. If we as Christians have baptism, have been baptized, we have have God's word, we ha we're members of a church, we're 
we're doing all these things, but there's no inward change. It doesn't matter. It's useless. If the heart has not been circumcised, if our hearts have not been turned to God through the power of His Spirit, as He says here in verse 29, we need His Spirit to circumcise our hearts. We need Him to transform us. A lot of times we can tell where our heart is by who we seek praise from. And I think that's the end of verse 29. Are we seeking what's praiseworthy to men or praiseworthy to God? Are we seeking God's praise of us? Are we seeking the praise of friends, family, co-workers, uh, other students if we're in school, do we care too much about what the world thinks? Is the actions and the words that we're using designed to make people like us? Or are they designed to glorify God? Are we willing to say hard things even though we know we're not going to be liked for it? I pray we are because... It's so easy. And this, I am naturally, I think we're all, in a sense, naturally do not like to be the cause of confrontation. If there's someone here that likes confrontation, I think we need to pray <laughs> for you. Because confrontation and liking confrontation is not natural. We want people to like us. Some people like the approval of others more than others. Absolutely. But from an early, fairly early on in my teen years, I definitely fell into this trap. And it wasn't until I realized that I was just living for the praise of others, seeking their approval, that I realized, wait, I'm calling myself a Christian, but I'm doing things... And saying things that I know are wrong. I know that they don't please God. That He's not saying, I'm so thankful that you're one of my children. I'm not saying that God didn't love me, but he, he let me live the way I wanted so that I would see how wicked I was, how much I needed Him. How much my heart had to be His so I don't know, application today, there, there is so much that we can apply to our lives, but specifically, I believe that we need to ask the Lord, is my heart circumcised? If you're a believer here and you've been one for a long time, maybe the question should be, Lord, I remember that day. I still, I, I mean, my, myself personally, I still remember the day I got saved and I, I remember events in my life that God has continually confirmed, but it's so easy to fall in the trap of saying, oh yeah, I'm living for the Lord. Well, has there been change in our lives? Are we growing in the Lord? Are we, are we finding ourselves more intimate with the Lord daily? Do we desire and hunger for Him? 
Or are we just doing things outwardly? Do we read our Bible just so that people will think we're good people? Do we pray so that others will notice? Or do we read the Word because we know that there are God's words to us? Do we pray so that we can have that intimacy with the Lord? Are we similar to the Jews? Are we looking to our works and legal ideas for our salvation? Are we trying to earn our way to heaven? Are we... Do we, or maybe we think that our external appearances are saving us. God is calling us to get rid of our last resort. There's a song out there that I like. It's called Burn the Ships. Burn those ships. Get on the Lord's island and burn the ships. Don't make a way of escape. Don't make a way to get off the island. Don't get a don't don't make a way to get out just in case it doesn't feel good. Put ourselves in a position where God is everything or we're going to be nothing. Or where we will be nothing. If God isn't everything for us, And we need to draw near. Cry out to God. Lord, I I noticed today in reading your word that there are, I have these tendencies. I think I'm a teacher, but I'm not being taught. I, I should be correcting the fools, but I'm the fool. I should be leading and guiding the blind, but Lord, I, I feel so blind. Cry out to God. He, he's there. The difference is if we hear this message and we're convicted and we ignore it, if we aren't willing to ask God to expose what it is within us that desires to be full, to be a fool, or, or desires to be immature, or desires to be blind, God is listening. He desires to draw us to Himself. It's maybe today's message is for us. He's speaking to us through His Spirit to remind us to cry out to Him. To remind us that it's the heart that matters. Just like I talked about David. Who knows what was going on in David's mind? There is no way David was living the way he was after sleeping with Bathsheba and killing his, her husband that he felt right. You don't think he didn't go every day thinking about his sin? David was a man after God's own heart. His sin was hammering home at him. But it wasn't until someone came to him. Nathan came with a message. He said, remember that sheep? Or he told the story of the sheep. He said, remember this guy? This guy, he took... He took this other man's lamb. He had plenty more of his own. But he took his neighbor who only had one lamb, his precious lamb. Gave it to his guests. What, What should we do? What did David say? He needs to be punished. 
And Nathan said, you're the man. Maybe that's, maybe this is your moment this morning. Maybe, maybe God is saying, you're the man, you're the woman that I'm dealing with this morning. Search our hearts. God does. I mean, how many times did King David write in the Psalms, search me and know me. Try my heart. We don't know the depths of our hearts, but God does. He's calling us to live our lives with all our hearts and all our souls devoted to serving Him. It may not get a lot of fame. There's, there are people. You think about Jim Elliot, famous for his devotion to the Lord. He died for the Lord. But there are other men that no one has ever heard of. They went off into a, the unknown and they died and no one ever heard about them. But I guarantee you, God got glory in their lives. Didn't have to, they didn't have to live some extravagant life. So many people just in this country who, who lived and died in the same community. But I guarantee you, when the saints are called to glory, there's not going to be a section of those who were especially adventurous in their following after Christ. And then the, oh, these, this is the section for all those, that, the homebodies. No. God's will for each of our lives is different. Serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength today. Maybe that will lead you to a foreign field. Maybe it might lead you next door. Or maybe to a poor community somewhere. We don't know where it's going to lead. But if we serve Him today with all of our hearts, realizing that it's He who has changed our hearts, and that we want to live according to His Word, we have hope. It's in Christ. And we're going to see that next week. Because next week is not any easier. Romans 3 is the probably one of the hardest passages for an unbeliever to hear. So if you have an unbelieving neighbor and you want to invite them to church, well, I won't be, Joel's going to be preaching next week, but... The week after that, you can invite him for Joel's message too. But uh, if you want somebody to hear the gospel and you've preached it to them yourselves, that's the, that's the, that's the primary. If you haven't preached it first, then don't bring them. Um, <laughs> you should invite them in a couple weeks or whenever. Because um, the book of Romans, Paul is so clear. There's nothing... In, in Romans that he's not afraid and we shouldn't either. So anyways, let's pray that God will open our eyes to those areas in our lives where we're trying to please men instead of God. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have preserved your word so that we can hear it and that you can pinpoint and cut into our hearts Showing us, Lord, those areas in our hearts where we're, we're not surrendered to you. That we're relying on the works of the law, just as the Jews, the majority, Lord. And um, that we're relying on outward signs as a evidence of our, 
our calling as children of God. But Lord, that's not what you call. You desire hearts that are circumcised. You desire hearts that are sold out to you. And Lord, that is a work that only you can do. So we ask, Lord, that this morning you would work in every heart here. And Lord, that you would show us areas where that is being hindered by selfishness and pride. And, and Lord, just help us to be drawn to you. You alone, Lord, are worthy. Father, I ask especially today that you would put people in our path this week to share the gospel with. People who have been lost and are looking for hope because you have done a work and you're starting a work in them. Lord, let us be a part of that process. Lord, cause us to be a light in the darkness. To, to guide the blind, Lord. To teach the immature and, and to see and be able to identify foolishness, Lord. But let us live by that, Lord. Let us not think that that's all that we need, Lord. We, we need to grow. We need to learn. Lord, being a disciple requires us to be constantly learning. Help us to hunger and thirst after Your Word, Lord. Fill us afresh with Your Spirit. Increase our love for You, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.